Hi there, I'm Prativa and I'm a public health specialist. And I'm Danny. I know nothing about public health. We started this podcast to help you navigate through the fire hose of information. Our goal at Immunocity is to speak to the concerns people have about COVID-19 and open up the conversation so that everyone can speak up without being shamed for their questions, perspectives, or concerns. everyone, welcome to another episode of Immunocity. Today we will be talking about vaccine terminology and vaccine data. Joining us is Douglas Arbiter. He has a background in infectious disease epidemiology and he currently is a statistician. Doug, welcome to our show. We're so thrilled to have you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. All right. So would you like to give us a brief introduction of the type of work that you're doing? Our listeners would love to hear what you're up to. Yeah, sh- yeah sure. So uh, like you mentioned, my background is in infectious disease epidemiology. I got my master's in public health from Columbia University. And after that, I ended up actually entering the field of biostatistics, which is pretty similar to epidemiology. But I now focus in clinical trials and pharmaceutical drug development. What I do in that role is every clinical trial is governed by a protocol, which is the design of the trial and also includes how we're going to analyze the data. So that's my responsibility is trying to figure out the most appropriate ways and methods to analyze the data. And I think a lot of people have been hearing terms like efficacy, talking about the vaccine, and, and that's something that I'm highly involved in, in trying to design the methods in which how we determine that a drug is efficacious, which means it works in a very specific setting because clinical trials are very controlled settings. And it's important to remember that versus say effectiveness is how, how is the drug or the vaccine going to work and perform in a real world setting outside of a really controlled environment in a clinical trial. So that's kind of my responsibility as a statistician is is figuring out the best ways to analyze the data and determine that a drug works, basically, in most simple terms. That's so interesting, Doug, because I know a lot of the a lot of the questions that our listeners have around the vaccine is specifically based on the fact that it was done as a controlled trial and now we are very much offering it broadly. Can you talk to us a little bit more about what the process is like to decide that a vaccine is safe to open it up to the general public and what sorts of checks and balances, I guess, are in place for us to make those types of decisions. Yeah, no, that's yeah, great question. So I'm going to back us up a little bit and talk about just the general clinical development process for a drug in general, which includes vaccine. So a lot of people hear different phase three, phase two, they hear a lot of these terminologies and might not know what they represent. So at a higher level, you have pre preclinical, which is a phase of drug development when you have a you have a compound that someone invented that thinks might work to treat a disease. First step is to test it in animal models because you know there are animals who have biological mechanisms that are similar to humans and we can make sure that the drug is kind of doing what we hypothesize that it can do. After that, you move to phase one. Now a phase one trial 
is the purpose is one, to see if it's safe in healthy adult humans. So we get healthy volunteers to participate in a trial who don't have the disease that we we eventually care about treating. So we want to make sure that just in in general, in people, it's safe. And there are very stringent processes to determine that it's safe and there are different statistical designs that we have to make sure it's safe. And then at the same time, in that phase one, we want to see the timeline of the drug in in the body and understand how long it stays in the body. And then as there are different changes in concentration of the drug in the body, what's happening to our own internal molecules. So, you know, think about like hormones or other proteins that we create, what our body is doing as the drug increases. So that's what, so that's what the phase one is. It's really to make sure it's safe and it's doing what we want it to do, the mechanism of action that it would treat the, the disease. Next, you have phase two. And you'll hear often there's phase two, three, like slash phase, there's phase two, A, phase two, B, but I'm just going to talk about phase two in general and what kind of the goals are of the phase two in clinical trials. And now the primary objective is to make sure it's safe. And then this is when, in phase two, is we start looking at efficacy. So remember, efficacy is, is the drug working? A lot of times, we don't know what the best dose is, right? Because if, you know, you have 10 milligrams, say 30 milligrams and 50 milligrams, and you're not sure what's the best, you, you, in phase two trials, you might have multiple dose groups. And over the course of the study, you'll look at the data and say, oh, well, you know, the 50 milligrams isn't doing a statistically better job than the 30 or the 10 milligrams. So there's no purpose to give a patient this much of the drug. So we can drop that and we'll continue with the 10 and 30. So it's trying to figure out the best dose level that's safe and effective, and it's finding that balance. And that's our purpose in phase two trials, but also looking at that efficacy. And, and those phase two studies tend to be smaller, you know, a couple hundred, 100, 200 max. And then when you get into phase three trials, you're, you're talking about possibly thousands of subjects. And this is where we're trying to actually claim that the drug is efficacious, meaning that it works in the population we care about. And those studies are used to submit to the FDA for approval. So phase threes are the big ones. Now, often you'll hear phase two, three hybrids where you kind of start with the phase two, you figure out the dose and it seamlessly transitions into a phase three. That's called an adaptive design. So there's a lot of variances, but overall the main goals are kind of how I laid them out. In the context of a vaccine, it's more preventative, right? A lot of people are concerned of how fast this process happened and that scares some people. But I think it's important to remember that, I mean, so much money was poured in from the government and stakeholders into getting the show on the road that what really was sped up is the startup processes, the identification of all the sites across the globe. And it wasn't difficult to find volunteers there. I mean, this was a major, you know, major trials that people wanted to participate in. So all of these things that usually take time, recruiting patients, finding sites, getting the money to fund these studies happened like that. But the actual process of looking to see if the drug is safe 
and starting to, and then looking to see if the drug is efficacious. I mean, that happened in the process in a way that it's supposed to happen. There was no, there's no skipping the line in terms of making sure that the drug is safe. Vaccines, studies require a lot of patients. When you're looking at the sample sizes, so the number of patients needed in the study, you're looking at like 40,000 subjects, participants are needed in order to determine if the vaccine works. I know I talked a lot. Feel free to ask clarification questions. Can I, um, I'd love to just sort of walk you through yeah. what I understood of yeah, phase okay. by phase and then maybe yeah. correct me if I'm wrong. So okay. phase one, what you're saying is basically we're looking at whether or not it's safe for people, looking at whether or not it's safe for it to go inside their bodies. And then what we're studying from a data standpoint is looking at how the vaccine actually reacts in their bodies and what's happening once they get it. Is that right? Yep. Yep. Okay. And then phase two? The phase two, it might be a more specific population. So it's not just anyone can get the vaccine. It's just a little bit more specific to a population that they want to definitely make sure that it's safe and effective. And so, you know, they want to make sure they have a lot of um, people over the age of 65, people with um, comorbidities, so people with diabetes, heart disease, cancers. Got it. So we would be looking in phase two, basically at the the target group of people. Starting, yeah, starting to make sure it's safe in the target group of people. Got it. And then phase three is really focusing on the efficacy in that targeted group of people. Okay. And in phase two, you talked a little bit about measuring the doses. And I know that's a big question for this vaccine is how much of it are you getting and how long is it effective for? For that process, are you looking at in phase two for the COVID vaccine in this case, how did we measure that effectiveness? Did we expose people to COVID after they got the vaccine or... Yeah, no, <laughs> no. So that that so there actually is a type of clinical trial called a challenge trial in which you hypothetically would give someone a vaccine and then expose them to the disease. And those are not currently approved in the United States um, in most places. Very bold. Um, yeah, yeah, very bold. So yeah, no, we don't do that. So it's there's a lot of complicated science, but there's something called immunogenicity, which is primarily what we focus on in vaccine trials and looking at antibodies, right? A lot of people have heard about antibodies. And so we're looking for antibodies and we're looking for something called neutralizing titers, which basically are molecules that our body will develop that neutralize the disease in addition to having, you know, antibodies. So we're looking to see after the vaccine we measure how much of those molecules are being created by the body. And then we also want to be able to follow over time how long those molecules stay active in the blood and in our bodies to, you know, unfortunately, it's complicated. I've read some literature that a booster will probably be necessary in the future, even after, you know, your, whatever the regimen is based on which vaccine people are getting. So it's, it's difficult, especially with these type of things to figure out. So in my talk of the phases was there's actually called phase four studies, which are real world evidence studies where this is after a drug is approved and um, we continue to monitor what's happening in the real world. Because remember, clinical trials are very controlled environments. We handpick 
inclusion criteria of who gets to participate in these studies. And in the real world, that's not necessarily the same. Even, even if a drug is approved for a certain population, physicians also, you know, prescribe off-label. There are possibilities that a drug could be safe in this selected population, but there might be a population of people who the drug is not safe in. And we have to continue to monitor what's happening in the real world to people who receive drugs to see if we see any signs of that. We call them adverse events, which is any kind of reaction to a drug. We have a reporting system where those things are reported to the government and, and the FDA is aware and reviews that data constantly. I also think it's important to note that there's no expectation from anyone that there won't be any adverse events. There was a New York Times article, it was just like, someone received the vaccine, had a reaction, and it seems like it's this big news. And while, you know, and it's important to note that those reactions are rare, but they're not necessarily unexpected. We know there are going to be people who are going to have some kind of reaction. And, and, and especially with vaccines, the whole point is to trigger an immune response. So the number one concern for safety is hypersensitivity reactions, or in other words, allergic reactions to the drug. We know there are people who will have allergic reactions. And that's why, you know, even right now, when healthcare workers are getting vaccinated now, they're hanging around for about 30 minutes after they get the vaccine to be monitored, you know, for any anaphylactic reactions, because we, we expect that there is going to be a small percentage of people who will react poorly. That doesn't mean the vaccine is unsafe. With all vaccines and all drug products, I mean, you've seen commercials, there are, there are risks. I mean, there are risks for, for adverse reactions to drugs. It's, it's a just, it's a part of the process, and it's normal. But based on the data that you've seen come out of the vaccines that have been approved in terms of severe or the adverse effects, the likelihood of that happening is still rare, correct? So what are your thoughts on some of the concerns that we've heard is about long-term side effects? Because the data that we have is just data that we've had for a couple of months. So what would you say to people who are concerned about not only acute or short-term adverse side effects, but also long-term side effects? This is where real-world evidence studies come into play. Generally with vaccines, you focus on, I think, a year follow-up, and then they'll continue in the world, and they'll you know, keep track of people who got the vaccine. I think the vaccine development process, we're not reinventing the wheel here. We've been making vaccines for a while now, and a lot of the technologies might be changing of how the vaccines are getting into the body and doing their job. But overall, there's, there's nothing that to me says, you know, the long-term outcomes here should be any different than what the long-term outcomes are of like the flu vaccine. But I don't think people are irrational for, for being concerned about anything regarding their health. But everything is about risk-benefit, right? The risk-benefit ratio is that we need people to take this vaccine. You know, it's, it's a global crisis and it's, it's, I think, a risk that we have to collectively take, you know, as a global society. Yeah, I like the fact that you brought up risk benefit, because the way that I'm looking at this is what are the risks of getting COVID in terms of long term effects, in terms of short term effects, we've heard of people who've been called or diagnosed with the long hauler aspect of the disease, we, we just don't know so much about what the virus will do to our bodies in the long term. And so to me, 
to me personally, that is a much higher risk than getting a vaccine where we don't have the data for long-term outcomes. But in terms of how the vaccine was developed, in terms of the science behind the vaccines, does not suggest that anything that we get in the future is any different from previous vaccines that we've developed. And, you know, the coronavirus can cause death. So, you know, if we want to start comparing the most severe cases of both, I don't think they're, they're comparable. I mean, it's, there's no doubt that the benefit of the vaccine is much greater than the risk of getting coronavirus. We've seen people in their 20s and 30s become severely ill and die from, from this disease. We don't know a lot about the disease too, for some reason in some people, it causes what is called a cytokine storm. And basically your immune system just attacks itself. The virus initiates such a robust response from your own immune system that your immune system ends up attacking its own organs. And we don't necessarily know why that's the case in some people. It's obviously a bigger case in older people whose immune systems are a bit older, but there are people who don't know they may have an underlying immune system issue. And what's interesting about it is that the life course in terms of how long from infection to like when you're still contagious, even among those, those long haulers from exposure, the average that you're able to transmit the viruses two around two weeks, if not a little less or a little more. And so even, you know, these these long haulers, I mean, there's no virus in their system anymore, but their body has continued to just self-destruct. So and so that's that's the crazy thing about it, is that there you can have no measurable virus left in you. I mean, and the course is pretty same for everyone. You get the virus, it peaks, and some people are asymptomatic and, you know, in the two, three weeks, it's, you're no longer transmissible. And same with the people who are really sick. There, there's really no difference in terms of the... In terms the, of how long they can infect other people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just, just a matter of how you're... At that point, those who get sick, it's your own body kind of continuing to attack itself. Can I go back to the vaccine data yeah. aspect? So we know that, for example, for Pfizer, for Moderna, the efficacy is around 95%. Can you explain to our les- listeners what that means? Does that mean that out of 100 people, 95 people will not get severe COVID and that five will get severe COVID? Can you explain what that 95% efficacy means? Sure. So, so really what they're saying when it's 95% effective is they're saying that the, the proportion of subjects in the vaccine group who get coronavirus divided by the proportion of subjects who get coronavirus in the placebo group subtracted from one is 95%. So are we saying that if you get the vaccine, you're 95% less likely to get coronavirus? Right. So efficacy is all about a comparison between two groups. So it's in this case, those who get the vaccine and not get the vaccine. So when we say that the efficacy of the vaccine is 95%, it means that the your risk for coronavirus is 95% less than those not getting Got it. the vaccine. Yeah. That's pretty yeah. good. Yeah. Thanks, Doug. Yeah, so essentially you have two groups, one group where they're given the vaccine, one group where they're not given the vaccine, and then you follow them along a period of time, and then you see how many people develop COVID in the non-vaccine group and how many people develop COVID in the vaccine group, and then compare 
And then based on that, you come up with an efficacy. So it's really comparing two groups. Yeah, exactly. What, what's really amazing about this whole process is that, which is something that's unusual, is I know Pfizer and Moderna have both made their clinical study protocols public. So you can Google them and see the protocols. And they are generally not public documents because they usually contain intellectual property stuff, like you know, stuff like that. And obviously, because it's, you know, a competitive market, but they are public and, you know, people have been looking at it, which is great. But again, it's very higher level stats. I think, Doug, one of the questions we've been asking a few yeah. of the people on our podcast is, sort of as, as you're working through this pandemic, and I imagine for everyone in public health, it's a similar, if you have any information regarding the vaccine, you're having to navigate a million questions from like friends, family, people that are not in that space. What are some of the most common concerns that you've been hearing and how are you addressing those in your personal life? Yeah. The most common thing I see are people like, well, I'm not getting the first batch because you never get the first one and I'm going to get the, when they tweak it out. I mean, it's, the, a vaccine is not like the first edition PlayStation 5. And when they find the glitches, they're going to like release the software update. <laughs> to, and then you can, and then you buy, you know, then you buy it. Or same with cars. People have the same idea. Of, oh, you know, I'm not going to get the new model. They have to figure out what's wrong with it or whatever. I've just been kind of talking to people. I mean, people think that they're associating the rollout of the vaccine with like, this is like the first batch of people who are going to get it. But you have to remember, tens of thousands of people have gotten, have received the vaccine in these clinical trials. So if there was an issue, the idea is that we would see those safety issues in those 40,000 people. So I keep reminding people that this isn't, it's not something like we don't know if it works or it doesn't work. I mean, it is a extremely rigid scientific process to be able to get to a point where the FDA is allowing the vaccine to be given to people under an emergency use authorization. And so I've just been making sure I'm having those conversations with friends and family and reminding them that in no way has the scientific process been rushed or shortcuts taken and anything that would increase the risk of missing some kind of safety signal with the vaccine. So it's just important to remember that these these vaccine trials, not only did they were extremely rigid in their scientific integrity, they also underwent a very rigid review of their data. And I and something that I also like to tell people when they start to question like, oh, well, what if they messed with the data? People don't understand how many people in a pharmaceutical company are involved in terms of the data collection. I mean, the data is collected at site levels. The data is constantly reviewed by medical monitors to look for safety signals as the study is ongoing. And clinical databases track everything. If there is a change made, and changes are made because they're something called queries, where if something just like a date is wrong, the system will send a warning to the data manager and say, oh, this person can't be born in 1885. You should contact the site and ask them, did you enter the date wrong? And then they fix it. But that fix is logged in a, like, it's kind of like you can't change the miles on your car, right? Like you just can't do it. 
And so the system tracks every change. And those changes are included in something called a trial master file, which is reviewed by the FDA. In addition to that, a lot of these studies involve third-party vendors who are helping with the analysis and reporting of the data and the collection of the data, and they're seeing it too. So it's, it is virtually impossible for anything to actually mess with the data that's being collected. Obviously, interpreting data is something that can be debated and, you know, what data means. But that's why there are so many reviewers, and that's why we have a government agency involved in the process of interpreting and, you know, or accepting interpretations of data. Yeah. yeah. Quick question based on that. What is one thing, because I really like how you differentiated between interpreting the data versus seeing the data, right? Like there are so many different people who think they understand it, but might not not necessarily understand the nuances of clinical trial data. So what is one thing that you wish non-statisticians knew about data? And what are your concerns about data results being used in the media, especially for folks who might just read headlines, um, like you said, about rare adverse events being shown in the New York Times or other platforms. What do you wish to tell non-statisticians about data? The context of data is important. And and I think that's something important to know and, and how data was collected and understanding the environmental biases that kind of exist around collecting that data. I guess what I'm trying to tell them is that the people who are interpreting the data and specifically statisticians and public health officials are trained to recognize those things while they're interpreting the data. You know, understanding everything from, okay, well, the statistical power that drove the trial, making sure that the trial integrity was strong. So something I guess we didn't talk about is that these randomized placebo-controlled double-blind studies are something that we call the gold standard of clinical trials. And that's because by having the clinicians blinded, meaning they don't know what treatment the subject received, and, and the subject not knowing what treatment they received and the sponsor companies, so the pharmaceutical companies not knowing what tr- treatment we were able to reduce a lot of that bias because if a physician knows what drug the participant got, they might be subconsciously more in favor of saying that the headache is related to the drug, for example. So those are types of biases that we try to reduce through the double-blind design and those things are evaluated. It happens. Sometimes some participants are accidentally unblinded in studies from just data, or we often have to unblind some participants for safety because the physician needs to know what they were on. And, and there are very particular ways in which the unblinding of patients impacts the analyses, and they're all taken into account. And, and so when it comes to interpreting data, there's a story that we need to tell. And it's important to, when you're interpreting data, understanding, okay, well, so yeah, this is what the numbers say, but was the 
the trial integrity intact? Was the blind maintained throughout the study? What biases could be inflating or deflating how efficacious the drug is? And all of those things are thought about by the professionals involved interpreting the data. And, and, and I think that's, sometimes I read news articles and I'm like, <laughs> like it, it, it scares me because they just kind of say at face value what the numbers say, but oftentimes I almost would have preferred the New York Times <laughs> article to say, as expected to rarely occur, someone who received the vaccine had an allergic reaction to it. It's like, it's stuff like that that really matters. The FDA understands that and one adverse event doesn't ruin a study. It's about, well, okay, what, under what conditions did that adverse event happen? What's the demographics of the person who had the adverse event? Did they have underlying conditions? It's about, it's about a bigger story and picture than just an event or a number. And there are people who are trained to see those things. And, and, and those are the things we look for and right. understand. So yeah. in summary, understand the context beyond just the numbers. Yeah. but ideally reach out to people who are trained in understanding data, such yeah. as statisticians and epidemiologists, to yeah. really get the full story behind what these numbers actually mean. Yeah, yeah, Okay. for sure. Doug, thank you so much for, for being yeah. with us today. This was really, really helpful. A lot of content here, but so helpful yeah. for people who just want to understand what all of the data is all about. Thank you for being yeah. here. Thanks for having me. It was great. Hey there, Danny again. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Stay safe and mask up.